Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone. I'm back with another listener rewards episode. Before I answer some questions, a couple of housekeeping items. One is to do with buying episodes from the historyofbyzantium.com. If you don't register with the site before you buy, then an account will be created for you, connected to the email address that you use for PayPal. This has confused many listeners who use a different email for their everyday correspondence. Uh, Anyway, a listener, Christian H. from Denmark, has bought a subscription, but I can't get in touch with him because the email associated with his PayPal isn't working. So if you hear this, Christian, please contact me. And for anyone else, uh, please do register first or check your PayPal email. This is particularly on my mind because July the 26th is coming up, which is the end of the first subscription cycle. Uh, That won't mean much to you unless you were one of the first listeners to uh, buy a subscription when I offered them. But I owe those subscribers three more bonus episodes before then, and I'm working on them now, um, which is adding to the delay in producing the regular episodes. Um, listeners on Facebook and Twitter will know that it's going to be something on women in Byzantium and uh, the issue of gender. Uh, But anyway, that will soon be over, and in addition to your regularly scheduled episodes, I can also begin editing the videos from Istanbul. Last time we talked about the emotions that following the Roman story can summon up in us, and listener MSR continues on this theme. While getting caught up with the History of the Crusades podcast, I found myself oddly upset when during the episode on the Fourth Crusade, Constantinople was sacked. It reminded me of how I've developed an emotional attachment to the Empire. This is due to the sheer amount of time and enjoyment I've had in following both the history of Rome and the history of Byzantium. I'd like to hear about how you feel about the Empire and what type of attachment you have to it. Outside of your job, what does it mean to you? Well, I definitely think that the Roman story lends itself to a sports franchise-style attachment. Because the Empire lasted for such a huge length of time, and you can chart its rise and fall so enjoyably on a map... I definitely began to form an allegiance to the Romans during my late teens and early twenties when I was reading history books for fun. 
marvelling at their skills and resilience and willing them on to fight off decline for as long as they could. I think the History of Rome podcast fed that feeling strongly because Mike adopted a state-centric approach and he built that sense of the Romans as your home team that you wanted to see succeed. It was the History of Rome podcast that really made me want to learn more and it coincided with my opportunity to visit Rome in 2010. And I was really excited to see the places associated with the stories and I felt quite emotional at times um, when visiting certain sites and um, you know that definitely I knew that there was a connection there between me and the Roman story. And I think the sports analogy is the one that works best for me um, because you do have to look past all the mindless aggression and brutality and cruelty with the Romans um, perhaps in the same way we look past the dubious practices or the uh, dubiously acquired wealth that props up some of the big sports teams of uh, our modern world. Uh, but in general, it comes naturally to me to support the Romans. I always take their side first uh, before my rational brain kicks in and asks me to question what I'm reading. And I think they have a huge advantage on the loyalties of those of us who are descended from European nations, because we can all relate to the Romans on some level, and we see similarities between their world and ours. We see their legacy all around us. And I guess it helps that our recent ancestors made self-conscious efforts to imitate them, uh, you know, whether in designing their governments or building triumphal arches or keeping Latin terms alive into the modern era. As for the Byzantines, in a way it's easier to sympathize and relate to them because they go from superpower to underdog in the space of 50 years and spend the next 800 or so just surviving. I think the Byzantines will always have a, a very special place in my heart for obvious reasons, but making something your job can also drain it of the mystery and fun that it once had. And I wouldn't say that's happened, but I have been forced to see things up close and try to see the weaknesses and the dark side of their civilization, or to see the point of view of the other peoples that they encountered. So it's it's complicated, I guess, by having worked on it for so long. But definitely I have, I have had and I continue to have uh, the similar feelings to those you describe. And I suspect I always will for the Romans. Our second and final question today comes from listener PCP, who says, Instead of asking which individuals are the best five emperors, I'd like to know your opinion on the top five qualities or characteristics of a reign by which the best emperors should be judged. For example, my list would be lack of internal strife, stable succession, responsible fiscal policy, military success without overreach, and successful delegation of authority. I think that's a great question, and I largely agree with the answer you've given. Uh, I'll order my own uh, slightly differently, and I am largely thinking of just Byzantine history um, when I'm answering this. But yeah, number one, I would say, would be the succession. 
I have no doubt that that is the most important part of an emperor's reign. And I think there's something poetic about that. The most vital distinction between the modern and the ancient world is life expectancy. We are thankfully used to seeing babies survive childhood and older people living past 70. And that's so commonplace that we struggle to comprehend how fragile life used to be. And so the most important responsibility of any ancient emperor was to organize a peaceful and sensible succession. Within those parameters, I am sympathetic to those who who died suddenly with a young child or whose successor unexpectedly turned out to be a maniac. Uh, But in general, the one thing you really must avoid uh, is civil war. Uh, And that's what tends to happen with an unplanned succession. And civil war is the most damaging situation for the empire. Um, If you look at all the worst periods in Roman history, civil war was at their heart. Um, So so the succession is number one. And I like that. You know, as soon as you become emperor, what's your first, uh, you know, what's the first thing you need to do is to plan for what happens when you die. Number two uh, for me would be creating a lack of internal strife, as uh, listener PCP put it. The ability to keep the peace, to bring a sense of unity, um, to lead with moderation, to avoid civil war, to avoid religious dispute, to avoid unnecessary injustice, cruelty, or taxation. It's quite hard for us to judge how well each emperor did on this score, because we struggle to find evidence of how you know, a particular region reacted to some policy. We only get a sort of general picture. But, you know, this was doubtless a daily concern for good emperors. You know, without modern communication and technology, so much of imperial life was persuading the elites and the common people to align their interests with yours. And the art of of peaceful persuasion and cooperation is a key one for any emperor. Number three would be delegation or finding trustworthy partners to share your burden. The job of emperor was too big for one person, far too big. Um, But of course, it was always a gamble to devolve too much power to a potential rival. Again and again, we see periods of success coinciding with powerful men and occasionally women working together. Augustus and Agrippa, Justinian and Theodora, and Justinian and Belisarius... And then, more recently, Romanus Lecapinos and John Corcuas, or the Focas family, and so on. Number four would be military competency, for me. I think it's too much to ask that your emperor also be a first-class general, but if he can find good men to lead the armies, or just respond to invasion or military challenge in a sensible and moderate manner, that is key. Another way of talking about competency might be to say emperors who put the needs of the state before their own desire for glory. Sometimes the best thing you can do is march your army to the border and then do nothing. And that was a temptation that uh, not many emperors succeeded in resisting. And number five, uh, finally, we have fiscal policy. 
managing your resources carefully, extracting as much as you can without angering the people, saving in good times, but also spreading money around to stimulate the economy, encouraging merchant activity, but cracking down on corruption. It's, again, quite hard to judge emperors on this because the economic tools at their disposal were very blunt, and the things which affected the economy were usually beyond their control. But again, as much as they could, it was a skill emperors needed. And I suspect there are many other skills, soft skills, that it was vital for Avasilevs to possess that we can't really access. It's not something that gets talked about in the history books. You know, having a, a regal bearing, hiding your discomfort or boredom during ceremonies and meetings, uh, pressing the flesh and being charming when you have to, appearing pious, managing your family, raising children to some extent, not letting power go to your head, having a thick skin, but also recognizing when someone needs to be kept in line, reading people you're talking to, learning who you can trust, making fair judgments, so on and so on and so on. I think listener PCP has nailed the top five, but I suppose there is always room to argue for one of those other characteristics uh, being key to imperial success. When we reach 1453, I will, of course, put up a poll and produce an episode uh, just discussing who were the best Byzantine emperors, uh, which hopefully will be a lot of fun. And I'm not voting for Justinian, I don't care what you say. That's it for now. I will be back soon, and if you're a Kickstarter backer, check your emails, as I'll be updating you on things shortly. <laughs>